When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the Footlocker's Club with Bryce, Michael, and Ivy. I know a story of high strangeness or two. Hey everybody, welcome to Bigfoot Collectors Club, the show where we talk to amazing guests and share stories of high strangeness. And boy oh boy, do we have an epic of high strangeness beginning with this episode. I'm your mm-hmm. host, Michael McMillan. With me always is your other host, Bryce Johnson, and your super producer, Riley Bray. Yeah. yeah. Guy. Ooh, guys, um, There are stories of high strangeness, and then Mm. there are what I like to call around here apartment destroyers. Oh, (laughs) oh, okay. Where I I sit down to record the episode, and I look around me, and everything looks like it's been rifled through by government agents. I have... Too many no books. Way, really. <laughs> I have too many books on my desk. The laundry is unfolded. Furniture's oh been God. moved about. Do um, you have like action figures like portraying what took place in ufology? Yes. Like, Re- do not Re- board that ship. No. <laughs> Reenacting, yes. Uh, Role playing to help me figure out the story. Nice. Yep. Um, yep. This is one that I've been looking forward to. And dreading for for some time. Uh, That's a good word. What, was I ready? Was I ready to take on and yes. share with you guys the saga of the Men in Black? I'm Hell not yeah. sure I was, but you know what? I leapt into the void, and I'm bringing you boys down with me. When you take that leap, Michael, you get rewarded, and and this will bear fruit for you. Well. We'll find out because if it bears fruit for me, it bears fruit for all of us, including mm-hmm. our dear listeners. Um, we got a fucking chunky soup. Guys, I'm calling it. It's May in Black. Okay. We're going to be talking about <laughs> men in black all month long. <laughs> oh my God. I, <laughs> okay. Cool. I have too much material to talk about here uh and we're gonna get into it i didn't think it was this girthy but you're right there is there's there's a lot to talk about so i'm excited because usually people sort of breeze through the topic this is one where i was like two-parter and quickly i was like "Mm, three-parter and now i feel like (laughs) 12-parter no 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 no. keep it to two two, buddy I think we're probably going to go three, but we'll, we'll find out. We'll see where the we'll chips. See. Okay. We'll see where the chips fall. Um, 
we're going to get into it before we do that. Let's do some very quick clubhouse keeping because we got a chunky episode. We have so okay. much amazing new merchandise for sale right now in the BCC merch shop. Uh, the BCC Records Collection, the Ultimate Champion 2 t-shirt uh, by okay. Honey Moore, which just dropped last week, featuring a reptilian Ripley that's been venomized with her <laughs> army of flying monkeys. <laughs> wow. Wow. I had to almost like jar my brain to go back. Wait, what were all yeah, these references against? <laughs> like, I'm glad you reminded me. Thank you. Yeah, and it's it, insane and so good. And serendipitously uh, dropped on uh just just a day Alien after day. Alien Day. Yeah. yeah. So I know. Uh, so cool. Prescient timing. Um so go to the link in the show notes of this episode uh, or or click our link tree on our Instagram at Bigfoot Collectors Club or right. over on Twitter at Bigfoot Pod yeah. or go to wearecampfire.media if you want to type that out. And you don't, you, hit that you don't want to type that out. Yeah, look, I'm and and you know what? I'm calling on all Club Scouts from all of our timelines to support the show and join our Patreon, BCC, the other side, it's five bucks a month. It's a $5 a month pledge. You're going to receive a minimum of three bonus episodes every month. Plus, we'll thank you on the air eventually. And if you upgrade to $9 a month, you're going to unlock the extraterrestrial tier. Ultra terrestrial tier, my ultra bad. Ultra terrestrial, ultra terrestrial tier. Riley's get, special where, feelings corner. <laughs> special yes, feelings Riley's corner, feelings corner. <laughs> AKA, where you're going to get additional weekly cosmic uh, tracks from riley so check that out as well i mean yeah it's uh you know it, it's it's i also call it my special feelings corner if you listened last week which is exactly <laughs> what it is um i share scores from the episode i share demos from a record i'm working on i share random times that i sit down and play music i i write a letter every week about my thoughts on music and production and songwriting and life and it's just, uh, I don't know if, if, if your team Riley, this is your corner of the Patreon. <laughs> let me, let <laughs> nice. me do this. This is usually nice. activity. This is the type of behavior that I save for the other side, but I'm going to read, I'm going to, I'm going to inject a little commenters club in here. I'm going to read some, some comments from our dear oh, wow. Patreons who, who mm. have things to say about the ultra terrestrial tier. Damn. I'm going to see if I can achieve mindfulness with this track says MH. Yeah. All right. Um, Scrolling through here. Cosmic track. uh, Music from airports. The road home. Thank you, Riley, for putting out such amazing music. You not only calm my anxiety, but my dogs just went from barking and everything to curled up on the couch in my office only a minute into this track. Look at that. Amazing. Loving this new tier. And thanks for all the work you put into the podcast that's from wednesday friday lachance and then amazing name brendan m says this is an incredible and beautiful song thank you riley um guys what else do you need to hear get over to the other side or upgrade to the ultra terrestrial tier to get all the dispatches from riley's special feelings corner (laughs) riley and isn't it true your music upgrades and strengthens your dna yeah that's actually a a clinically proven fact yeah and does it it actually decalcify your pineal gland gland. nine out of ten doctors agree that riley's ambient special feelings decalcify your pineal i mean come on 
Let's open up that third eye. Let's open up that third eye, everybody. Um, All right. You a little short on change? We understand. It's hard times. You don't have nine bucks. You don't have five bucks. Well, go ahead and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and we might read it on the air like this one. From Mariah. This podcast is one of my go-tos, always. Each host is hilarious and likable, and they have so many different topics and guests, so each episode is entertaining from beginning to end. These are the kind of dudes you want to have as neighbors, so you can get this content (laughs) while you barbecue and chit-chat about humanoids and ghouls. Five stars. That sounds like a great barbecue. I want to go to that barbecue. Come over to my place. I'm having a humanoid and ghoul BBQ. I don't know. I think my neighbors think I'm crazy. I'm buried to myself in my neighborhood, so I don't know if I'm like... But thank you so much, Mariah. I love that. Yes, this is our neighborhood barbecue all together. Um, These are the Bradleys, and then these are the Johnsons. He talks to squirrels in his (laughs) bed. And he doesn't trust you. (laughs) Well... You're going to trust your neighbors even less after this episode, oh, no. I feel like. <laughs> Great. And Great. listen, it could be worse. You could be creating your own haunted house in your attic. All right? <laughs> this is something that happens in this story. Um, thank you, everybody. Check all that stuff out. Support the show. We appreciate it. Okay. Let's get into it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, you guys. <sighs> Let's do it. Let's do it hours spent i've spent hours this week on this i told my agents i don't have time for this audition i am trying to solve the (laughs) mystery of the men in black (laughs) michael can we confirm you for that guest not now not today john not today um well let's kick off Okay, first of all, I I am calling this a saga. I wasn't allowed to call uh, the Yeti a saga. It was a deep dive. (laughs) We haven't done an official saga since Roswell. People may disagree. Mm. My co-hosts may disagree. I'm calling this a saga, people. Okay? Great. This is the saga of the Men in Black. All right? So we're kicking off all these deep dives each time we get into one by asking Riley, Mm -hmm. what do you know about the Men in Black off the top of your head? I'd say my main point of reference is the X-Files episode, Jose Chung from Outer Space. Uh, Perfect. Who's that wrestler that plays the Men in Black? Uh, It was Jesse Ventura. Jesse the Body Ventura. Ventura. Former Minnesota governor. Governor of the Body Ventura. Jesse the Body Ventura. And Alex Trebek. Yes. That's right. I will be picturing the two of them the entire time we're doing this saga. (laughs) Uh, And I mean... Uh, as that's pretty much it aside from like how much we've discussed it on the show just about you know the bizarre behavior uh the ill-fitting clothes the the strange movements the um Mm, mm -hmm. just how they're sort of like this sort of uh alien sort of uh vibe for lack of a better Mm, word to these to these people uh that they generally visit people after some sort of paranormal encounter Mm -hmm. and uh That's about it. That's pretty pretty much what I got. Not bad. I I, I feel like we would be remiss if we didn't address the elephant in the room, which is, of course, the popular Men in Black movie movie franchise. Oh, I mean, I feel like there's a movie. (laughs) Oh, um, you, that's right. You're too young. Um, I just feel like that's probably where everybody heard this term first if they weren't already into you know 
the paranormal and the unexplained. Right. And I'm going to say this. The Men in Black movie is pure sugar-coated fiction. The truth is much deeper, darker, scarier, and more mind-blowing than you could ever imagine. Yep. So you're saying keep the Men in Black movie's title out your fucking mouth? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I had to. I just had to get that out of the way now. That was the way to do it, too. (laughs) Keep that movie's name out your fucking mouth. Yes, yes, Riley. That's it. I mean... A scare, you know. Sadly, I still feel like that reference is is, is uh, timely. Two months after it actually happened, we're yeah. still we're still talking about it. We're still talking about it. All right. Well, oh, yeah. the good thing for us and our audience is we're not going to talk anything about that movie because the real <laughs> Men in Black is is so much more interesting and strange and phenomenal. And I think you would agree. And they're not the good guys, everybody. They're whatever they are. They're not the good guys. We don't know that. We don't know that. I might mm-hmm. play some devil's advocate there okay. down the road for All you. right. All right. Let's get our theories ready. And if you guys are listening, you have some theories that you want to build as we go through the month of May in Black, then uh, we definitely want to hear it right into us at Bigfoot Collectors Club at gmail.com. Comment on Instagram at Bigfoot Collectors Club and uh over on twitter at bigfoot pod although no one's gonna read it i'm sorry to tell you i'm pretty much abandoned that platform but (laughs) we'll still post when there's a new episode we love you guys all right let's go let's get into this it's time it's time here we go here we go (sighs) get that music ready baby all right here we go our story doesn't begin in 1976 but that's where we're gonna start on september 11th 1976, at around 8 p.m. in Orchard Beach, Maine, in the home of a general practitioner and hypnotist who had recently begun working with UFO contactees to account for missing time, one Dr. Herbert Bud Hopkins. Yeah. Well, he'd been spending the summer interviewing a client by the name of David Stevens, who'd feared... He'd been a victim of alien abduction after witnessing strange lights in the sky while driving home one night. Through the use of hypno-regression, Bud had been recording sessions with David, hoping to unlock buried memories of the event, which may have been suppressed by otherworldly visitors. In other words, David had been getting regressed. That evening of September 11th, Bud was... Home alone, save for the family dog, a German shepherd, collie mix, uh, waiting for his wife to come home. When the phone rang, Bud picked it up. Now, we don't have a transcript of the conversation, but I imagine it went something like this. Hopkins residence, Bud speaking. Hello, may I speak with Dr. Hopkins, please? Yes, speaking. Who is this? I represent a collective of like-minded individuals called the New Jersey UFO Research Organization. Okay. I was hoping you could provide us with some information on a particular contactee case that has come to our attention. The subject in question is David Stevens. David Stevens, yes, I'm familiar. We know. I was hoping I could speak with you in person about David seems we share an interest that might prove mutually beneficial. 
I see. Uh, when would be a good time to meet? I could meet you at your home tonight. Uh, well, sure, that's, that's fine. Come over now if you like. Bud gave the man his address and then hung up. Later, looking back on the moment, he would find it strange that he agreed so quickly and casually to meet with the mysterious caller. Nevertheless, Bud went to turn on the front door light and await his guest. But much to his surprise, on the faint fringes of the light, he could see a man, dressed in all black, approaching his front door. His visitor had already arrived. Bud opened the door and welcomed the stranger into his house. The man was decked out in a black suit, all too large for his white, his bone-white skeletal frame. The visitor also wore gray suede gloves and a black, wide-brimmed hat called a Homburg. His lips were blood-red. The family dog went crazy, barking at the visitor before running off and hiding. Unfazed, the man followed Bud robotically into the living room, where things soon took a sinister turn. I want to know about your work with the alien abductee David Stevens. As Bud struggled to answer the man's questions, he couldn't help but notice his visitor was completely hairless, down to a lack of eyelashes. At one point, the man pressed the back of his fingertips to his lips and stained them with red. He was wearing lipstick. Could the alabaster white skin be makeup as well? The man told Hopkins, You have two coins in your pocket. How... How did you know that? Remove one of the coins and place it in your open hand. Bud did what he was told, pulling out a quarter and presenting it in his open palm. Don't look at me. Look at the coin. Bud did so, and watched in in astonishment as the coin began to vibrate, then turn blue, then fade into a vapor-like substance, and then vanish altogether. Reeling from this unworldly magic trick... Bud looked back at the man, who told him in no uncertain terms, Barney Hill has died. A strange reference to Barney Hill of the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case from the 60s, and no, he had not, in fact, just died. He wouldn't die for some time later. What? The husband of Betty Hill. His heart has stopped just now. You will suffer a fate similar if you do not stop your investigation of David Stevens and destroy all evidence of your work. I will know if you do not do as you are told. With that, the creepy stranger's speech began to slow. He moved unsteadily to the door and then left. Bud followed behind where he saw the man step towards a bright light in the yard that had appeared. First, he thought they might be headlights, but then realized those lights couldn't belong to a car. Bud dashed to the windows to get a better look, but the man and the lights had vanished. Bud stood there, wondering who had just threatened him and how he knew about his work with David. When Bud's wife returned later that evening, she found her husband destroying all of his tapes and research. 
the man in black had put the fear of God in him. Or rather, not God. Something worse. Something evil. And it certainly wasn't from New Jersey. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a good line. Yeah. It, it, it took a lot of me to hold back from responding as but Now you just wait just a goddamn minute there. <laughs> now hold on there, you. Halfway through my MIB, I was like, oh, is this what it feels like when you're Jared Leto and you're acting? <laughs> <laughs> you're looking back, it was very Leto-esque. You're right. Yeah, yeah. he would ma- actually make a terrific Men in Black. Wait, Leto-esque, that's a perfect liminal word for, like, yes. novelty or something mm-hmm. strange instead of yep. Austrian. Yeah. Oh, that was very Leto-esque. Very Leto-esque. Oh, yeah. My encounter with the UFO was very Leto-esque. Mm, I see. That makes sense. Yes. Well, looking into the history of the Men in Black, or MIB, is like peering into the face of one of the legendary entities itself intimidating, even a bit threatening. The image is before you, fully formed and striking a tall, pale, white man dressed in a 1950s-era black suit, complete with a fedora and sunglasses standing on your doorstep, often accompanied by two other MIB on either shoulder, requesting vampirically to enter your home for a discussion about your recent flying saucer encounter. Mm, They evoke They evoke the essence of a government spook, a CIA operative, or FBI agent. Yet, there's something off about the whole picture. Closer look at the face, and you see it's mushed together like putty, almost haphazardly composed as if it took form in a hurry. You glance down at the feet and see wires running out of the being's socks and up into its pant legs. Its movements and gestures are off, stiff, robotic, clockwork-like, or that like that of a newborn foal taking its first steps. The visage of an MIB is like a face you composed in a dream, familiar, yet when you try to hold it in your mind, you can't quite place it. That's the story itself of the Men in Black. Fully material, yet at the same time, it feels held together by dreams. A Mm. nightmarish entity that evaporates in the morning light, much like a vampire. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And that's a good word. I think we'll, we'll, talking about theories later, we'll want to sort of, I think, go into why you might have chosen that word, vampire, or, you know, to these to suck something's energy or blood or, you know, um, it's a good word. Well, just in the nature that it also, they also show up sometimes in groups and they're asking mm. to come inside and it's very right. strange. They're very pale. So when it comes to the men in black, we must ask this question. What is real and what is fiction? In many ways, Their story is the story of ufology, a blend of real and fake, a combination of truth and hoax, factual reporting and shared metafiction. The Men in Black personify the paranoia that comes for you after too many late nights of researching high strangeness, the eerie sense of the strange not only looking back at you, but coming to get you. Who knows? Perhaps I will receive a visit before this series is finished. Mm. Although, I truly hope not. 
And what about you, dear I, listener? I, I hope so. Yeah, yeah I hope so. Well, you hope I do? Yeah. I'll, I mean, that's something. good radio, you know? That's true. It is. I was walking the dog today, and there was a black Tesla and a guy who looked like Magnum P.I., dark sunglasses, dark mustache. Wait, hold on. Oh, license shirt. No, 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 no. I should, that bad, bad reference. Bad reference. More like a, like a George Norrie type. Just like, okay. you know, okay. dark, like kind of brooding. And it was something off about the car, and it slowed as I was walking. And, oh. and the, the plate caught my attention. It was like TSLA, like Tesla 001. I was like, oh, that's hmm. interesting. What do you think you're the first Tesla? But I was suspicious, Michael. You know, I, honestly, the other night, I was having weird dreams about alien grays mm. and i had a dream i had a dream i had a dream that the, the the gray the alien gray that i thought i saw appearing in my window way back in episode zero right had come back and i was receiving messages that my neighborhood had like a portal in it where these entities would come in and out right <laughs> and and when i woke up from that dream I had this thing that happens sometimes where, like, my eyes are closed, but I have those, like, spinning, spiral, checkered patterns, almost like millions of tiles shifting and and making shapes when I close my eyes. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes when you're, like, sometimes when you're, like, tripping on shrooms, you see stuff like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. uh, Hypnagogia. uh, Different patterns and shapes and... Um, yeah, yeah you know of, I, it's sort of like manifesting your your three dimensional reality. Yeah, it's like those carpet patterns that you see spinning in front of you. Riley, help me out here. You know what I'm talking about, right? You like to do psychedelics. I mean, I see those sober. I don't. I don't know what you guys are talking about. <laughs> oh, apparently so, you didn't like my help. Okay, fine. <laughs> but it was funny because as I was having that happen. I was like, and usually that I feel like that happens when I'm having like really heavy REM or heavy dreaming and I've just woken up. I started to see pale white faces and black fedoras emerge from, and I was like, oh, these fuckers are trying to show up, aren't they? And I took a cue from a tip that comes in the book that we're going to get into. And we're not going to really talk about this today, but I was like, make fun of it, make fun of it and it'll go away. And I just started picturing Bugs Bunny hammering all these guys over the head with a giant wooden mallet. And like suddenly the (laughs) whole thing dissipated. (laughs) That's awesome. Humor is the great weapon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and like he said, we'll go into why why he did that, uh, why used why used humor to combat it, because there is a theory, you know, that some purport that, you know, perhaps these entities, these men in black, they thrive on human fear. And so they're actually feeding on it. Uh, and this is where they they get their juice to uh, live and manifest in our own reality. But they need that emotional human fear. And uh, Michael combating it with uh, the idea of this joke sort of short circuits that program. They go, cannot compute, and, you know, out they go. Uh, Riley, you better start getting silly over in Riley's feelings corner because... Seriously, I'm going to... They might want to head over there. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take my strange Tesla over uh, pale white faces in a dream any day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was creepy stuff. And what about you... Uh, 
Dear listener, are you prepared for a visit from the MIB? You might want to be because we're about to take a deep dive into the mysterious nature of these shadowy figures and their dark origins. For this is the saga of the Men in Black. Bum, bum, bum. Primary sources for this week's episode come from The Real Men in Black by Nick Redfern and They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers by Gray Barker. Part 1. Chamber of Horrors. Most ufologists attribute the popularization of the Men in Black phenomenon to two men and saucerists, Albert K. Bender and Gray Barker. Although the root of the MIB's origins are possibly based in a on a flesh and blood encounter with Albert Bender, there can be very little doubt that Gray Barker, a controversial figure in the field, and let's say reality heightener, didn't dress the uh, narrative uh, didn't dress the narrative with a fuck ton load of bullshit. Um, yet, as we will explore over the next few episodes does seem to be a genuine supernatural phenomenon at play here. It's part real and it's part fake, just like the men in black themselves. It's important to note that long before strange beings dressed like madmen background players driving around in black Cadillacs entered the UFO lexicon, there have always been figures of men dressed in black in our folklore. Pointing out the obvious here, the man in black is usually the villain of any story. From the Grim Reaper to Black Knights to Dracula and Westerns where the bad guy is always in the black hat, all the way to Darth Vader, the color black is typically shorthand for this character is a bad guy. It doesn't apply solely to male characters either. Think Ursula from The Little Mermaid or the Baroness from G.I. Joe. Bryce, I threw that one in there for you. Nice, nice. Or Maleficent. You get the picture. Perhaps one of the most iconic movie villains of all time looks like a literal MIB, Mr. Smith from The Matrix, fighting so desperately to keep the secrets of the true nature of reality from humanity. Men in Black have always been on the fringes of the human experience. According to author and paranormal researcher William Bradley, early versions of Men in Black were even spotted in certain European communities that were devastated by the Black Plague. There's that color again. Bradley, an interesting figure himself worth a closer look, was an actor, author, and ex-Scientologist who was labeled as a suppressive person after leaving the church uh, by none other than L. Ron Hubbard himself. He became fascinated with the UFO phenomenon during the 1970s, and in his book, The Gods of Eden, Bradley wrote this. In Brandenburg, Germany, there appeared 15 men with fearful faces and long siths. Scythes. They cut scythes. You got Star Wars on the brain. Yeah. Yeah. Thinking Star Wars. The scythe. You know, those long blades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got it. I got it. I got it. With which they cut the oats, so that the swish could be heard at great distance, but the oats remained standing. The visit of these men was followed immediately by a severe outbreak of plague in Brandenburg, where the scythes, long instruments designed to spray poison or germ-laden gases, 
Strange men in black, demons, and other terrifying figures were observed in other European communities carrying brooms or scythes or swords that were used to sweep or knock at people's doors. The inhabitants of these houses fell ill with plague afterwards. It is from these reports that people created the popular image of death as a skeleton, a demon, a man in a black robe carrying a scythe. For longtime listeners of this podcast, this image of a mist-spewing entity no doubt evokes the image of the Mad Gasser of Mattoon, another MIB type who tormented a community in Illinois with random late-night gassings. See Bigfoot Collectors Club, episode 82, The Mad Gasser of Mattoon, with John Daly for more information. Those events took place in 1944, a full nine years before the Men in Black mystery would grip the feverish minds of civilian ufologists. Paranormal research and author Brad Steiger has also uh, found evidence in his research that the ancient alchemists, desperate to transmogrify base metals into precious gold, were sometimes visited by Men in Black, Ascended Masters, and Dark Sorcerers alike who would appear unexpectedly in their laboratories and show them secrets of the mystic arts. Based on Bud Hopkins' experience with that evaporating coin, perhaps these MIB know a thing or two about those sacred, secret, mystic alchemical arts. One man... And coin tricks! And the magic trick stouts coming out of your ear, <laughs> Mr. Hopkins, ah, Dr. Hopkins! Do not speak of these things! Don't look at my hand, look at the coin! Uh, where'd my wallet go? One man who was most definitely interested in ancient secrets, UFOs, and the paranormal was one Albert K. Bender. And we have him to thank for bringing our attention to the men in black. Or is that the other way around? We'll meet Bender and his colleague, Gray Barker, right after the break. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Albert K. Bender was a resident of Bridgeport, Connecticut in his 20s when the flying saucer era began and completely took over his worldview. A World War II vet, Bender grew up in a family that displayed a predisposition to occult thinking and paranormal interest. He had a cousin who saw a vision of a woman in black in his bedroom at an early age, 
and an extended family member died of a brain hemorrhage that the rest of the family thought was caused by a ghost that lived in a neighboring cemetery. Just, okay. <laughs> yeah, so these... Obviously. Yeah, obviously. That's happened. I'd like to know a little more information about that, please. On December 5th, 1945, Flight 19, a group of five Avenger torpedo bombers disappeared over the Bermuda Triangle after departing from Fort Lauderdale. The mysterious disappearance of Flight 19 ignited Bender's fascination with the unknown, leading him to read the works of Charles Fort, the father of, well, Fortian Studies, a.k.a the granddaddy of high strangeness that's right sidebar we gotta we gotta we gotta do an episode about charles ford we're almost I know, two, yeah we're almost 200 episodes in and we've really we've referenced him a few times but like charles ford was the guy who really started collecting all it. these I stories love, i love doing <laughs> bios of high strangeness i'll tackle that one for sure i nice. know you'd love to uh Yes. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we ha- we there would be no Bigfoot Collectors Club without Charles Fort. Mm-mm. Bender's fascination with the unexplained blended with his interest in the occult and gothic horror. He transformed his attic apartment into a house of horrors, complete with ghoulish faces painted in the walls and plastic spiders hanging <laughs> from the ceiling. And he would beckon his neighbors and friends to come take a look. The project took him the better part of a year, and he called it Bender's Chambers of Horrors. It's no wonder (laughs) that Albert Bender was considered, at the very least, a weird dude, and at worst, a fucking sicko. (laughs) What, because he has a spider ceiling? (laughs) Whatever, dude. Sadly, Bender displayed all social symptoms of a classic creep. He could be irritable, fussy, obsessive, and controlling. He likely suffered from anxiety and OCD, which were probably compounded by his isolated life in that attic of nightmares which he lived in his stepfather's house. (laughs) Now I feel bad because I feel like I am making fun of him when I'm really not. It's just a (laughs) lot to unpack. He's probably also dealing with PTSD, for God's sake. Maybe he's Fort- whistling while he's working. You don't know. He might be very he- happy and jubilant. <laughs> Listen, he definitely was just, I think, honestly, I think Bender was just a good old-fashioned fucking pop culture nerd. Like, if Friday the 13th had existed, had, had like, not Freddy, like, he would have loved all that shit. You know what I mean? He would have been, like, a, yeah, totally. he would have been at the New Bev every night during uh, the month of October watching every slasher flick. I, I well, just think he was a nerd. It sounds like he was a wanderer, too. Like, really interested in these sort of uh, on-the-precipice occult ideas and esotericism and all that. Just the weird stuff, you know, that a lot of people love, including myself. Yeah, I, do. I don't Sadly, have spider ceilings, yeah. but, you know. Well, you know, I mean, he could he could have been a special effects artist, for, you know what I mean, or a set decorator in some of these movies. Totally. I think he yeah. I think he was in the wrong place at the right the wrong time, although as we'll see, he was there when all of this shit started, and I think if he could choose to be, he'd rather be right where he was, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Touche. Yep. So fortunately for his sake, Bender would find a community that embraced him. 
on June 24th, just like all nerds, guys, just like all nerds, on June 24th, 1947, private pilot Kenneth Arnold spotted nine unidentified craft flying in formation over Mount Rainier in Washington State, skidding across the sky like saucers skipping on water. And with this event, the flying saucer age was born. Bender became obsessed with the phenomenon, following Arnold's story closely and cutting and pasting flying saucer stories from the newspapers for his own personal archives. Bender, a witness to the birth of the UFO age, started one of the very first flying saucer civilian research groups in April of 1952, a worldwide collective he called the IFSB, the International Flying Saucer Bureau. What a fucking nerd. I love, I'm like, cool. I love yeah. this guy. <laughs> this dude definitely would have had a podcast. It's uh, like, Riley, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. This league of fellow saucerists led to a growing network of UFO enthusiasts, and Bender began publishing his own magazine, Space Review. Wow. Riley, you called it just like a podcast that starts with humble beginnings. Bender's tiny empire grew quickly and became a genuine success, grabbing the attention of UFO researchers from all around the world. Bender formed a tight group of IFSB members and included Dominic Lucchesi, August Roberts, and most importantly, the man who would be the most responsible for making Bender a legend, one Gray Barker. Now, Barker. Michael, I got yeah. I got to ask you real quick. How much do you think those original space reviews are worth today? Are, are they still around? Can somebody get those? That's a really good question. Um, I mean, they gotta I, be I, worth I don't a, know. A pretty coin, right? I would imagine. I don't know because I, I don't know how much of a wide demand there was for some mm, like right. Connecticut zine, you know, published right, totally. out of an attic of nightmares. You know what I mean? So like. Right. But I mean, to us, yes. But that's a really great, I mean, honestly, if somebody, if either one of you want to like Google eBay and see if you can find space review, copies of space review, I have to imagine it was a pretty like humble magazine, but he did, he did have a global reach. So interesting. I don't know. I I was just curious. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and obviously similar publications would follow, you know what I mean? Um, and publications that we've quoted here on on the podcast um yeah i'd love to find out that would i mean that would be really cool to see um so gray barker now i like to think of gray barker as kind of the stan lee of the burgeoning flying saucer craze he was a move He was a movie theater booker from West Virginia. Barker got interested in the phenomenon after reading the Shaver Mysteries that were published by Ray Palmer in Fate Magazine. Mm, Okay, so actually I take take it back. Ray Palmer was the Stan Lee of Flying Saucers. Barker was more like the Jim Shooter of Flying Saucers, which is sort of a deep cut for Marvel Comics fans. But basically Barker helped make ufology a little more adult and a little scarier. Um, mm. I think it's safe to say that without Gray Barker, or maybe without him, but he's basically the one that injected the family-friendly sci-fi boys magazine flying saucer craze with the holy shit, they're lying to everybody conspiracy theory stuff. You know what I mean? Gotcha. 
Bryce, um, give us a little bit of background, what you remember about the Shaver mysteries that were published in uh, in in uh, uh, Fate magazine and Amazing Stories. Yeah, well, this is I, okay. So I'll see if I can remember a lot of this. Stuff. I can help you uh, out too. Yeah, well, Dick Shaver, Richard Shaver, he was a uh, <laughs> he was a blue collar worker. I believe he was a uh, you know he's a metallurgist. Yeah. yeah, he was a metallurgist and he and he welded and and one day from the from the blowtorch of his welding gun he started hearing these strange voices I believe and and they were calling him to a, a mountainous cave and he explored this cave where he came across these entities that were almost robotic like but biological in nature and they were very mischievous and up to no good. And he coined them D-Rose or uh, I forget what that stands for, like demonic robots or something like that. I forget. But yeah. anyway, he was he would journalize and, and tell these stories to anyone who would listen, including one Ray Palmer, who got hold of these stories and started publishing them in his magazine, Fate Magazine. And they they became an instant hit. But Dick Shaver wasn't just making up stories for pulp or for fiction. These He believed something truly extraordinary was happening to him uh, in and around these cave systems in the, in the southeastern United States. And there's a lot of other material and references and people's claims that can help back up some of what Dick Shaver was experiencing. Yeah, this was this is where you and I d- disagree a little bit on this subject. I mm. so so basically like Shaver was from Pittsburgh. He wrote a letter into to uh it was either amazing it might have been amazing stories at the time which Ray Palmer wasn't yet the editor of. And the editor at the time read this letter and was like this is ridiculous, threw it away. Ray Palmer dug it out of the trash. Got it. Read it. it. And then he was like, oh, there's ancient aliens living underground and they're the cause of all of humanity's strife. Like if any negative feeling is caught is actually caused by one of their evil ray guns. There's something here. And then Ray Palmer took Dick Shaver's letter, embellished it, gave it a little bit of a, a nudge. And then that became popular and that encouraged dick shaver to send more stories in and so i think it was actually the beginning of now whether richard shaver thought there was truth to this or not i think that is absolutely up for debate but to me these shaver mysteries were sort of the first one of the early examples of the blair witch tape where it was Mm. metafiction that was meant to feel like something real that that then became popular but instead of people all realizing it was just a movie that this Blair Witch Project wasn't actually a tape that was found in the woods people started to go no it's a fucking tape that was found in the woods and this Mm. shit is real and all of that started to pile on you know all feed in on one another to the point where you couldn't figure out where the truth and the the fiction started began and ended right yeah yeah totally and i could see why because i sort of see it differently as i see dick shaver as just another contactee an experiencer who had just a plethora of stories to tell from 
downloads he was getting off planet and just like his experiences in the caves and and you know he would send these into ray palmer so whether he was fictionalizing or not or these were experiences he was willing to sort of go on record with uh, i'm not quite sure but also it's going through the hands of palmer who was that's right you know punching them up so absolutely it's, it's all i mean to me I mean, it's it's there. You can kind of look it up. I think this was one of those things where it was like, it's as if people started to think, oh, like War of the Worlds radio broadcast, maybe this mm. stuff is really real. You know what I mean? Right. And right. kind of became what a lot of internet conspiracy theories are today. There's a little truth here, a little bit of this. It all connects to these other things. And now I don't know. Now suddenly I'm down like a YouTube wormhole and I believe everything about the Shaver mystery. You know what I mean? Right. Totally. And yeah, and great, bad idea. Great. Yeah. Gray Barker was really into this and like really, mm. really into, he followed that story. And the, the other curious thing is that Ray Palmer, and I know we're going off on a tangent here, but it is kind of important. Ray Palmer at one point was just like, okay, all done. He just ended the Shaver mysteries after a five year saga. And he was just sort of like, I'm done. Let's move on. <laughs> so wow, they kind of, okay. it, all, Interesting. it all just kind of ended, but, but a lot of the stories and ancient alien stuff and Lemuria, and Atlantis and stuff that Shaver put into those stories, they all kind of bled over into UFOlogy. And a lot of people would cite his work as foundation for part of their UFO and I'll ancient alien theories, right? Almost like drinking from a tainted well for the last 40, yes. 50 years. Yes. And that's what I'm talking about when I say that the whole men in black thing is very strange because it's partly truthful and it's also partly fiction. And, and, mm. and this is where, when we get into this era of UFOlogy, it's really hard unless you're really going back and looking at the context of how all of this stuff came out it's really hard to figure out what was actual accounting and you know true events and what had been punched up for these publications and some of these early books that were just looking to capitalize on the flying saucer phenomenon Gotcha. That being said, I think Ray Palmer really did believe in the existence of UFOs and all of this stuff. Gray Barker, I'm not so sure. Okay, wait, wait. Before we move on, though, uh, while you guys were chatting, I went quiet for a second because I found one single copy of Space Review, Volume yes. 1 from 1962, <gasps> on sale online from some obscure book site not Amazon. And uh, I bought it. So that's coming for the Clubhouse Library. No! You just that, bought wait, it? Wait, what did you pay? 62 is too late. $30 with shipping. That's not bad. <laughs> we'll take a look. 62 is too late. It should have been 52 Oh, well, it's probably just mislabeled. It's like yeah. it's like a handmade like printout. Yes. I'll send you guys the cover. It's Total no. zine, right? It's oh, dude. very, very zine. Great. Yes. Oh, uh, that's so killer. Amazing. Super producer coming through. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah. I got you guys. You right. own shit now. <laughs> yeah, original copies. <laughs> All right. Carry on. Carry on. Gray Barker, who loved a good story and was a great, it was great at spinning yarns himself, closely followed Kenneth Arnold's account, as well as his investigation into the Maury Island UFO incident, which Barker embellished greatly in his 1956 book they knew too much about flying saucers 
Barker's version of the story, which took place in 1945, just prior to Kenneth Arnold's encounter over Mount Rainier, involved a man in a black suit knocking on the door of one of the eyewitnesses, Harold Dahl, and inviting him to breakfast in his brand new black Cadillac. Over breakfast, this mysterious individual recounted verbatim everything Dahl and his colleague Fred Chrisman had witnessed one day earlier involving a UFO-shaped craft that allegedly spewed hot molten debris over their boat in the Puget Sound. Barker's version of the story, which took place in 1945, just prior to Kenneth Arnold's encounter, involved a man in a black suit knocking on the door of one of the eyewitnesses, Harold Dahl, and inviting him to breakfast in his brand new black Cadillac. Over breakfast, this mysterious individual recounted verbatim everything Dahl and his colleague, Fred Chrisman, had witnessed one day earlier involving a UFO-shaped craft that allegedly spewed hot molten debris over their boat in the Puget Sound. Dahl, according to Barker's version of the story, was shaken by this revelation, as if the man in the dark suit had been there himself. The man then warned Dahl, What I have told you is proof that I know a great deal more about this experience of yours than you will want to believe. He then told Dahl that he and Chrisman had witnessed something that he weren't supposed to see, and that if he didn't want anything bad to happen to him or his family, he should stay quiet. Stay quiet. Yes, stay quiet. If this version of the story is true then this would place an MIB at the scene of a UFO encounter as early as 1945, several years before Albert Bender would encounter them himself, which we will get into momentarily. However, so much about the Maury Island story seems to be a hoax, or at the very least, fishy, so I wouldn't be surprised if Barker took what happened to Bender and then simply retconned this whole story by adding a man in black to the Maury Island case when he revisited while writing They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers in 1956. That's the problem with Gray Barker. We can't really trust his word on anything. This is also why... Yeah, UFOlogy is sometimes so frustrating to unpack and why so many people just give up and call it all horseshit. Here's but not Michael where, McMillan. Not me. Not Bryce Johnson. <laughs> and certainly not, not Bryce Riley Johnson. Bray. Not Riley Bray. No. Here's uh, UFO researcher Jerome Clark's take on Barker, as told to Nick Redfern from the book The Real Men in Black. Barker started out as a serious figure, but relatively early realized that he was never going to solve the mystery, so he might as well have fun with it. Thus, all the exploitations and even outright hoaxes. Only he would have known what he really believed. And yes, he was a magnificent storyteller. For more on the Maury Island UFO incident, check out BCC 46. Anyway, back to Albert K. Bender and his growing UFO researcher empire. Things began to take a dark turn and a paranoid turn for poor Bender during the height of the IFSB's activity. In July of 1952, during what surely was a very busy summer for Bender's members, I mean, a huge flying saucer flap was happening across the <laughs> Best country. Best summer ever! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Bender's greatest summer! <laughs> Bender received a strange phone call. His stepfather was alone, or was gone, and 
Bender was home alone, so he answered the phone. He picked up the receiver. Hello. Silence on the other end. But Bender could sense a presence. Someone was there. Hello? Hello, who's there? Huh? Who's there? Still no answer. Then, suddenly, Bender's head began to spin. He stumbled, dropping the phone and clutching his head, which was suddenly on fire with pain. Bender crawled into bed, where he stayed for the next few days. Hold on, my stirring performance uh, awoke baby from her nap. She thinks someone's at the door. I have to let her out. Stand by. Now that's an actor, am I you right? Know, that's funny because Violet just got up and came into the room with me. Usually she sits here the whole time that I, I podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, acting. <laughs> Poor wow. baby. Are you sure there isn't an MIB at your door? <laughs> oh, what? All right, you back? I'm back. Oh, yeah, okay, we're back. Great. Let's do this. A few days later, Bender was finally feeling better, so he went to the movies. After the film on the walk home, Bender couldn't help but feel like he was being watched. When he got home, he headed upstairs to the attic, when suddenly he stopped cold in his tracks. There was an almost supernatural glowing light shining through the cracks of his door. Bender burst into the room where he was greeted with the smell of sulfur and a harsh light that briefly blinded him. When his senses returned, he could see that all of his precious IFSB files had been rifled through. Someone someone had been going through his things. My things! (laughs) Over the next few months... Bender tried to shake off the incident by spending time decorating his chamber of horrors and and going to the movies. <laughs> How Miles spend time with I my know precious make me feel better. <laughs> my precious More spiders. spiders. <laughs> More spiders will do it. No, no, I want the faces to look as if they're trapped in the wall and they're they're trying to break free. <laughs> However, oh, on it should look as if the wall is a stomach <laughs> and the faces are trying to burst through the membrane. I wrote space review. I'm a big deal. <laughs> However, on one such visit to the movie theater, during the film, Bender started to feel dizzy again. His head buzzing, he looked over to see a well-kept man in a black suit with bright Light bulb glowing eyes materialized before him a few seats down the row. A wave of nausea hit Bender as the migraine came rushing back. The figure seemed to vanish and then rematerialize all around the movie theater, tormenting poor Bender from a distance throughout the film. Bender was being watched, perhaps even haunted by a strange, dark, malevolent presence. The paranoia, migraines, and dizzy spells escalated over the coming months, during which Bender reported the smells of sulfur and even poltergeist activity in his apartment. Yeah. Finally, the psychic storm escalated when Bender was visited at home by three men in black suits. Yeah, that's a disturbing part, isn't it? That that these things are sometimes or even usually followed by 
poltergeist activity in the home. Whether it's seeing a UFO sighting, seeing a strange men in black in the back of a theater, something follows you home paranormally and all hell breaks loose. What is that? Now, around the same time, in 1953, the CIA formed something called the Robertson Group, which purportedly investigated the national security implications of unidentified flying objects in U.S. airspace. After all, it had only been a year since the summer of 52 when flying saucers were witnessed flying over Washington, D.C., It is very likely, in fact, highly probable that at least the FBI and or maybe the CIA were keeping tabs on civilian UFO research groups trying to get to the bottom of the flying saucer mystery by sharing all of this information, especially ones as popular as the IFSB. Also, what a great resource for the FBI because these are the people that are gathering all of the eyewitness testimony. Yeah, 100%. And look, you know, if you're questioning whether or not, like, J. Edgar Hoover's uh, new burgeoning agency would be interested in, like, little UFO groups, let me tell you, absolutely he was. He was interested in the Soviets taking advantage of these groups and uh, propagating yeah. misinformation, disinformation, or even... You, you have to remember the effect of something like War of the Worlds that took place. So, you know, Edgar Hoover was worried that they might use this UFO uh, thing to cause a diversion, giving them the impetus or surprise moment they needed to do a, a surprise attack. You I know? guess this is also where I should pause and say that um, I think that we're guilty of continuing a overhyped uh, legend that so many people believed the truth about War of the Worlds and that many listeners have pointed out to us that that was probably maybe not factually accurate. However, mm, totally. However, um, the these civilian groups, these UFO clubs, these researchers Part of all of this information was sharing the idea that the government wasn't telling them everything, right? And so it seems to me logical that where there's mistrust of the U.S. government, there's room for, let's say, in in Hoover's mind, in the FBI's mind, in the CIA's imagination— that seems prime for a Russian spy to slip in and start pushing mm. more distrust of the U.S. government out there, right? Yeah, that's a great point, yeah. And so they're going to be interested, for I think, for a number of reasons about what, what kind of information these groups are sharing. Also, uh, they uh, also this is around the time that the CIA, during the Cold War, started MK Ultra, and we're beginning to do black psyops uh experiments on civilians this is all mm, real whoa. stuff this you know what i mean and so i could see their interest in maybe popping around to intimidate people just to see how they react or maybe learn showing up hmm learn the lingo learn yep. the lingo but also like you know what, let's shut these guys up, but what if we put on white makeup and red lipstick and act real weird so when they tell their friends about it, 
they'll sound fucking crazy and therefore mm. make the UFO stuff sound crazy. Cause there's also the chance that they're, they do have government, you know, aircraft or top secret weapons that they're trying to cover up. I don't know. It just, it seems like this, this time period was just a free for all for like, Men who had been at war and now were bored and were freaking out and not going to therapy and dealing with all this bullshit and just trying to scare each other. You know what I mean? That's so great. I can imagine like a bored FBI meeting room. Like they're just, what are we going to do today, boys? Uh, Those UFO groups are causing a lot of ruckus. Why don't we uh, go take a look at what's going on over there? (laughs) Make sure you grab your wife's lipstick. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah, it's well, gonna get weird. weird. Now it's not that I want to put this on. That's not it. It's that I want to scare another man. <laughs> yeah, it's for mind control, see. But it's also like if you, if obviously, like we've kind of learned that maybe the government doesn't know as much as they know about. We thought they knew about UFOs. That if right. they did think these were aircraft were Russian, they would also be freaked out and paranoid themselves. So you've got government agencies paranoid about Russia, and then you have yeah. UFO nerds paranoid about the government, and and then you have everybody paranoid about UFOs. It's it's just it's just like, and that you just ha- and then you have like science fiction writers it's getting the involved. Perfect storm. Yes, yeah, of course. Yes, yes. It just breeds conspiracy theory, right? Hmm. Um, so where was I? <laughs> uh, right. So right. yes, I found it. Uh, we were at, uh, we're talking about everyone being interested perhaps in the IFSB. So maybe a trio of G men showed up at Bender's place that night to put a little fear of God in him. And maybe he was getting too close to the truth. According to the first version of the story about the visitation of three men in black suits to Albert Bender's wonderful attic in 1953, these three men revealed to Bender the true nature of UFOs. And the truth was so mind-blowing that even Bender understood it should never be revealed to the public. Under the threat of death, the men in black told Bender that he was to shut down his research and keep his mouth shut. And then they slipped out into the night. The whole experience seemed to upset Bender so greatly that in October of 1953, he canceled Space Review and closed the shutters on IFSB. Wow. Gray Barker claims that he begged Bender to tell him who the men were and what had happened, what had they told him, but Bender refused to elaborate. If the men had shown Bender any government credentials, he was not speaking. There was no way he wanted to incur the wrath of the men in black. Bender's closing statement on the whole ordeal, printed in the final issue of Space Review, speaks for itself. We would like to print the full story in Space Review, but because of the nature of information, we are sorry that we have been advised in the negative. We advise those engaged with saucer work to be very careful. And that 
was the end of the IFSB. But it was only the beginning of the MIB. Over the next 50 years, many others would come forward with tales of strange encounters with these dark visitors, including their appearance in the town of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, during the reign of the legendary Mothman. And we'll get into all of that in part two of The Men in Black. Wild. All right. Wild. There you go. Pulling the threads, man. Pulling (laughs) on them threads, man. Riley, now where's your head at? I just want to, like, find all these vintage books. You've um... been just looking at old (laughs) magazines for the past ten minutes, haven't you? (laughs) No, I haven't, but I'm really excited about my copy of Space Review. I'm just sort of, like, fantasizing about it. I was, I mean... I don't know, man. This is like it's so like layered and bizarre, and uh, these guys are like really kooky characters that I'm very uh, intrigued by. Um, I, I I don't know what to make of it. it. To me, it feels like some psyops kind of vibes. Yes. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like uh, yeah, like you're saying, like early MK Ultra, like toying with kind of the the paranoid sort of fringe people. Um, I'm excited for you to convince me otherwise. I'll say that much. There's, I mean, we're going to get into it. I mean, I think that it's probably likely that Bender was visited by just some suits, some G-men. And they were like, what's this shit? What's going on here? I think Bender was possibly having a psychotic break. I think he was probably very paranoid under a lot of stress, had a lot of underlining maybe mental health issues that weren't being addressed. And he was somebody who, because apparently this period of paranoia just lasted for so long that I wouldn't be surprised that he had some kind of psychotic break. And then when you have government dudes showing up on your doorstep, it just reinforces all of that paranoia that you've been going through. Right. Yeah. 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 Um. But I don't know. And I don't know how much of it has been filtered through Gray Barker and him taking what had happened to his colleague and and punching it up. But Right, of course, yeah. I definitely think, I for sure believe that literal men in black suits were were checking in on all these guys, especially during the Cold War and all this stuff. (laughs) I think they were just like... What are these guys talking about? What do they know about national security? What do they know about UFOs? And do they have connections to Russians? Because they were just as fucking paranoid, uh, again, about the Russians as as these guys were about the government and UFOs. Yeah, I think that's like the most logical kind of conclusion about this is it's like a paranoia, a paranoia feedback loop. Mm-hmm. And like everyone's right. out weirding each other. And it's just like, yeah, they're just wigging each other out, you know? But then you get into Mm. these stories of like Bud Hopkins and you're like, okay, what the fuck is this? Right. Yeah. Well, look, I I offer I offer a different view. I mean, look, let's let's just say uh, that perhaps it was something more supernatural. You know, perhaps they were feeding off of, you know, perhaps these visitors like the UFOs themselves, they transform and they manipulate over time. So perhaps these visitors to Bender's strange apartment and in the back of that dark movie theater, you know, sort of presaged itself as, you know, 
scary. Using Bender's own thoughts and and sort of sort of mind paranoia manifested as somebody in a dark suit and with a with a dark hat that might be considered like a man of the government, you know. Uh, but when upon closer inspection, it's falling apart at the seams. The face doesn't seem right. It doesn't move. It doesn't talk right. And when they come in threes and they put hands on Bender, he goes into some, you know, boom, lights are out. And the next thing he remembers is some phantasmagoria story about being whisked away to a base in Antarctica. Well, well, wait, wait a minute. Head. You're getting ahead of ourselves oh, here. Okay. We're not oh. there yet. Okay. We're not Coming there attractions. yet. Okay. Sheesh. But good, good. I want, I'll stop there. But, but, you know, let it just be said, you know, maybe these weren't, you know, just men from the government, but uh, entities sort of, you know, putting on a coy disguise using I will s- the most darkest recesses of Bender's mind. Paranoid I, I, government. I, I, I will say I like to that, that read on it. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, yeah. And I will say to that note that they are for sure whatever they are. They are a blend of Bender's imagined G-men from the government mixed mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. his occult of gothic lore so they yeah. are part vampire and they are part government spook you know what i mean right right and that's why i think they behave in the way that they do yeah man some All right. strange little brew guys i told you may in black get ready we're going to get into some weird shit. Um, all right. Before we sign off, let's get some plugs. Boys, what do you got? Riley. I mean, I I just I haven't brought it up in a while, but uh, maybe uh, follow me on Instagram. Great. I'm at, I'm at Peace Drone. Um, I, I, I use social media now. So, you know, and I have for a little while and I'm actually kind of enjoying it. So And good at it. And good oh, at it. I mean, if you oh, want a... Uh, uh, an artful uh follow you're gonna get better shit off uh riley than you will me for sure uh, <laughs> not that it's a competition but thank you no but i mean you've got you've got your yours feels very curated and and stylish i think people can appreciate no, I'm, that i'm, I'm putting in the effort on brand yeah give me a follow at peace drone that's my plug great bryce Cool, you know what I'm shaking you down for? Expedition Bigfoot on Sunday nights, Travel Channel Discovery Plus. Uh, You don't want to miss it. Be there. Fantastic. And uh, I have another podcast, Slate Your Name. Check it out. Talking to actors about all the things that we worry about and all the things that are fun about our business. So check that out wherever you get podcasts. Guys, thank you so much. Hope you enjoyed this uh, week's episode, part one of Men in Black. Stick around for the rest of the month. Until next week, good night. And go get regressed. There's someone knocking on my door. Could it? Don't do not answer it unless it's with a joke. Bigfoot Collectors Club is produced by Riley Bray and Michael McMillan and scored and engineered by Riley Bray. Our theme song, Come Alone, is by Sun Eaters, courtesy of Lotus Pool Records. Do us a favor and support the show and unlock three bonus episodes every month by becoming a member of our Patreon, BCC The Other Side, which can be found at patreon.com slash Bigfoot Collectors Club.
On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Eric Malinsky, host of the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Each episode, I explore different sci-fi fantasy genres, talking with filmmakers, novelists, game designers, cosplayers, comic book artists, and anyone who works in the field of make-believe. I also look at the fan experience, asking, why do we suspend our disbelief? You can subscribe to Imaginary Worlds wherever you get your podcasts.